This is the Unraveled Podcast with host Kayla Barring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Kayla Barring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. When we wrapped up last week, we had just finished talking about the verdict and the sentencing where Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were both found guilty on all three counts and both sentenced to death. And we mentioned briefly that when someone's sentenced to death in Ada, Oklahoma in the 1980s, the appeals process or starting the appeals process is kind of something that happens automatically. So Nicole, tell us more about what happened for Tommy and what happened for Carl as far as the appeals process, because at this point they now have separate cases too, right? Yeah, they are looked at separately in terms of um, they've both been sentenced to death. They've both been um, given this hefty sentence. But now each sort of lawyer has the responsibility for getting their client um, into the appeals process. It should also be noted that the judge has the discretion at this point where he can either follow the juror's death sentence or make a recommendation for a sentencing both of them to life instead. And the judge in this case uh, indicated that he had no desire to overrule the jury, and so the death penalty was going to stay on the table. So the Court of Criminal Appeals, like you said, would be automatic. The, fi- the attorneys have to file one piece of paper to kind of request this to get started. So, and Are these the same attorneys, or do you have to now get a new attorney? Well, at this point, it is still um, Wyatt and Butner, and you will have your last... These attorneys will stay with them um, until the last piece of paper is filed. And then at that okay. point, um, they will be given new attorneys because it's it's not the same attorney that's going to go into the Court of Criminal Appeals. So, um, so each attorney has this one piece of paper that they have to hand in, and then the, the process kind of gets started. So um, on the sentencing day, now October 25th is going to be sentencing day. Now they've been given this, this sentence of death, but they actually have to come into the courts and um, have a formal sentencing day. So Carl and Tommy both show up. Um, their attorneys show up. At this point, the it's this kind of last effort where the attorneys are going to ask for another a new trial. So it sounds kind of like coming into this sentencing day, everybody kind of knows what's going to happen. There's like maybe this really, really, really faint glimmer of hope, but really everybody's on the same page that they're walking in and they're just kind of formalizing the death sentence. Yeah, it's this like last kind of box that you have to check off before moving into the appeals process. Like you had said, it's an automatic thing, but there are these kind of formal things that have to be done. And so the first reason that they say that they should be given a new trial a new trial is that they the attorneys cite that the testimony about the rape and the confession tapes should not have been seen by the jury um, since they were not in fact tried for rape. So it's their it's an effort that they are making again to one get the tapes off the table and two 
just this last effort of like we need a new trial and if our listeners remember you know we talked uh, a number of episodes back about how uh, in the preliminary hearing they determined which of the charges can go forward and it, it was you know we discussed how strange it was that he let every uh, every count go forward every accusation go forward except the rape even though they all kind of had the same evidence which was just mostly just these tapes um, and so that makes a lot of sense because they aren't being tried with the rape but the the heinous details in these confession tapes about the rape are almost you know inevitably anyone who's human who experiences emotions like let's say an average human is going to have some sort of visceral or negative reaction to hearing these gory details about this rape and that's going to inform how they feel about whether or not these men are guilty of murder and so that i think is actually a a really strong argument that 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 tainted the jury and that a new trial is needed in order to make sure that these gentlemen get a fair verdict. And so what does the judge say about that? You know, the judge does not agree, and the judge overrules the motion, and um, his reasoning is that the the rape details are so embedded in the confession tape that it would be impossible to play the tapes and remove the bits of it that talk about the rape that happened. So though they were being charged with rape, you're right, them hearing the details of this rape are surely affecting the jurors. Um, But the judge just overruled it and said there's no way that we would be able to play these tapes and use these tapes, which are absolutely vital, without and be able to take out these bits about the rape. So that gets overruled. The second motion that they said is... They bring up the fact that a woman had been excluded from being a juror solely because she opposed the death penalty. And we talked about that in the uh, episode about jury selection, too. We talked about the woman that had been um, not chosen because she openly opposed the death penalty, and they didn't choose her. Now, at this... Not only they didn't choose her, but she was automatically excluded because she didn't believe in the death penalty. Right, right. Exactly. It worked against her being able to serve on a jury. Yeah. So at this time, simultaneously what's happening in Oklahoma is that the federal court had recently um, been looking at a case like this, saying that such disqualifications unfairly tainted jurors in favor of the prosecution. So there was this case that was had gone to federal court in Oklahoma. It was actually on its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So this case is moving up its up the path to the Supreme Court at the same time that this is this other case, you know, Carl and Tommy are being sentenced. And, and that's, that's actually something that we talked about specifically when we were talking about this woman was that it seemed like when you're excluding people who don't believe in the death penalty, you're probably excluding people who are maybe going to be a little bit more lenient or sympathetic. Right. Um, and that was when we talked about how now most states have a separate trial to determine guilt or innocence from the trial that determines what the sentencing is. Right. And, and you know, and this was before, obviously, the case that you're talking about. Right. And I think, it, I, mean, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it too much until I, think I started to look at the case that was going to the Supreme Court, and I started to really think, like, that 
does favor the prosecution, right? Because if you have a bunch of jurors and everybody believes in the death penalty, there is nobody in there, which I don't think is a fair representation of a jury of our peers, right? A jury of our peers do not all believe in the death penalty or not all tough on crime. That there is that you can't fairly, you know... A case cannot be looked at fairly if everybody has the same viewpoint and everybody believes that you should be put to death no matter what. Like, So, I mean, I think this is an amazing case that was going to the Supreme Court. I would love to know more about how, you know, the, the workings of that case. But in this moment, you know, the attorneys for Tommy and Carl bring it in as a reason to, again, ask for a new trial. And unfortunately, the judge does not agree or does not uh, decide to use this bit of information, maybe because it hadn't gone to the Supreme Court yet. You know, it wasn't the law of the land yet. It was, it had gone to the federal court. That's as far as I'd gone. But the judge did overturn, overrule that one, that motion as well. And so both attempts were denied. And so now they are just going to move forward with sentencing. And I think that was kind of expected that those would both be denied, but they at least wanted to give it the effort. And I give it to them for... Wyatt and Butner are trying this whole time, right? Like, they... I do not look at their their lawyer work as as lazy lawyers. They are very, like... um, Even throughout the, the, the trial, always kind of just asking for a, a mistrial or asking for this, that they have not proven that um, a crime had been committed. You know, they just kind of kept going at it. And Judge Powers just kept denying them, you know. And this was a case he denied their last two efforts. And um, so at this point, they are now going to be sentenced. This is also an opportunity, the first opportunity that Carl and Tommy both have to address the court. So they are asked each to come up, and Tommy goes first, and he addresses the court. He's asked if he has anything to say. The only thing he says is, I didn't do it. Which is the worst thing that you can say. I don't think it's what you want to end with well, in the courts. You know, I think in his mind, it's the best thing that he can say because you didn't do it. But in our criminal justice system, it's the worst thing that you can say. I mean, if you go, if you get a sentence that's, say, 15 years to life or 25 to life, after 25 years, you have the opportunity for parole. Um, but if you go into a parole hearing and you say, I didn't do it, and you maintain your innocence, you will never, ever, ever get out on parole because what they're looking for is that you're remorseful about what you did and that you've reformed. And if you're still denying that you did it at all, then they'll never let you out because they look at that as you refusing to take responsibility for what you've done. Um, And so even though he's going into it, I assume in his mind thinking like, I didn't do it and this is my final chance to be heard and proclaim my innocence, the judge is seeing someone who's not willing to take responsibility for what they've done. Which is this kind of double-edged sword, right? It's like, if you then, if we, but we know that people that are innocent are incarcerated. We know, And so you, or, or I, it makes me think of folks that are arrested and then forced into taking guilty pleas um, in lieu of going to trial with the idea that if they go to trial, they're going to get a much worse sentence, even though they maybe have not actually committed the crime that they are being accused of. And so 
it's almost this knee jerk where I feel like if I was a person who had been wrongfully convicted, I had been wrongfully, if I had felt like I, here I am, I've been sentenced to death and the only thing that may help me is appearing remorseful. It's, it's almost unfathomable to think of that, right? Because if I hadn't done it, it almost is like you still want to claim your innocence. But you're right. It doesn't actually serve you very well when you are in within the systems, right? Because when you're within them, they want to see that you feel bad about it, that you um, have changed your life, and that you are able to voice that remorse. Mm-hmm. But in this case, Tommy just says, I didn't do it. Um, He's then sentenced to death by the judge. He's given a date of January 21st, 1986, as being his execution day. Um, Carl then goes second. He is also given an opportunity to address the court. At this point, he says, I would like the court to let me know when they find the people who committed these crimes. That was all he had said. This kind of threw the judge for a second, and the judge kind of um, took a moment and then made, and then addressed Carl and said, well, I believe that the court has shown, you know, has, has given voice to the people who've committed these crimes, kind of implying that that's already happened, and Tommy and Carl, you are the two who have been found guilty of committing these crimes. Well, and honestly, I don't. I don't think that Carl would have understood what the judge said. I don't think that Carl has that level of intelligence to read into what the judge is saying. And I think that his comment um, speaks to, you know, his lack of his lack of intelligence and his lack of understanding of what's going on. And what comes up for me actually when you say that is, you know, in order to be tried, you have to be understanding the crimes that you're being accused of and the proceedings that you're entering into and the punishments that can happen. And it seems from just from that comment that he does not understand these proceedings. He still, he still seems to think that they're going to go out there looking for whoever actually did it. Yeah. That even though him and Tommy have been convicted, that they're being sentenced for this murder, that the government, the courts, the police, that somebody is going to go out and find the person who actually did it. And that just tells me that he may not even have the intelligence level to have to have sat for this trial. Right. And I mean, if we look at his behavior in the courtroom, if we look at his behavior when he was, the verdict was still read, you know, I think that we could do a whole nother podcast on the personalities and history, life history and disposition of both Tommy and Carl, right? We haven't spoken very much about them as people. We haven't talked about the, the information that we have about how they grew up. They're like, what their family life was like, what it was like um, for them and Ada, what kind of things they had been into before this. We didn't, haven't talked about any of that, you know, but there is a lot of information there and there is a lot of information that points to both of them not always grasping what is happening. I think we saw that with Tommy during the trial where he was making up more stories. Well, and um, even during his confession, even just talking to the police. Right, like not fully grasping what we're up against. And I think um, that is is a whole nother a bit of information that due to time and, and making this confusing that we didn't go into, but there's so much there. And I think, 
you're right for Carl to have said these. This is the only thing he hasn't even shown a bit of of real emotion since this trial has gone on, and then to have an opportunity to address the court and have this be the thing that he's saying, it's surprising. Um, it, but I think it does, like you say, it it points to kind of maybe what he is able to understand. So. After that, that bit of information, uh, the judge then uh, sentences Carl to death as well, um, and he is given the same execution day, January 21st, 1986. So they now have both been formally sentenced to die. They have been given execution dates. The judge does point out at this at this point that an automatic appeals process in regard to the death penalty is already... Um, is an automatic, that this automatic appeals process will start, and that this sentence would not be carried out until all of the appeals were exhausted. And so if you, we, I think we hear this a lot about death row and death row cases, is that people are often on death row for many, many, many years because of the appeals process. California actually recently just voted to shorten this time um, and saying that it was costing too much money to house people on death row. Um, and this is a point of, I think, contention for if we want to were to dis- dissect the death penalty. You know, we know that people who have later been found innocent um, due to like DNA, have been in fact executed, and so to shorten that appeals process is is sticky. Um, but in this case, in Oklahoma, you are able to exhaust as many appeals as you need to. At this point, I, when Tommy and Carl are both sentenced to go to death row, there were people on death row at that time who had been in an appeals process for you know nine plus years. They had been convicted in the seventies, so. Uh, so that that's kind of where they stood. And so at this point, the men can spend 10 more days in county jail. Then they move on to an assessment center, and then they go from there to death row, which is at Oklahoma State Penitentiary. It's a maximum security state prison in Oklahoma. Um, Fontenot waives his 10 days in county jail and wants to go directly to the penitentiary. And Ward, due to, of course, having family and visitors, um, opts to stay in Ada for that 10 days in county jail. Okay, so now they've both gone on to the penitentiary. You mentioned that the appeals process is automatic. So what what happens with their appeals? They've both been sentenced to death January 21st, and uh, we're in October. So what happens next during these three months before they're to be put to death? Well, the first thing that they have to do is they have to get new attorneys, right? So Wyatt and Butner both after they file their notices of appeal would be relieved of their responsibilities. They are told this during the sentencing hearing. They are told that um, they will be, you know, they're done once they file this this bit of paperwork. Um, Both defendants are also asked if they have money to hire lawyers for the appeal process. And they both tell the judge, of course not, um, that they, and so the judge confirms that both men would have their appeals handled by the appellate public defender's office. So it's a another public defender's office that is going to handle their appeal. So all of that is is 
just also brought up at this sentencing is that we need to find them new new lawyers. And this is where things get kind of derailed for a moment. And, and it's kind of more of the same sort of um, unfortunate events for these two. And uh, Carl's formal notice of appeal gets signed and it, it's done. Tommy's, unfortunately, does not get signed. Now... The judge is the person who signs these pap- this paperwork. The judge notices that there's no paperwork for Tommy, doesn't really address that. Car- he notices that there is one for Carl. That gets sent off. Now we move to mid-November, and they are in the Oklahoma maximum security state prison. They're both on death row. They're in separate cells. We go on to December 20th. And now December 20th, now mind you, this is about this is a month. One month this is a month prior to their execution because they are set to be executed January 21st. And yes, they are in an appeals process, but I do not know if they understand fully what that means. And you have to also remember that they're not getting the information, the ability to get information to and from them now that they have moved to maximum security prison has drastically changed because this isn't being in the Ada County Jail. This is much more strict, many more restrictions. So, um, But December 20th, Tommy Ward gets a call from the warden's office, and this is uh, about some paperwork issues he's told. So uh, Tommy goes into the warden's office, and warden the warden tells Tommy that he had been sentenced to execution at 12.30 a.m. on Tuesday, January 21st, 1986, that no stay of execution has been received. Therefore, the prison was required to proceed with the plans of execution. And the stay of execution is that that appeal that you're talking about to stay the execution to to stop it to put it on hold while they have time to file any relevant appeals to the hearing right so from the prison's perspective all they're looking for is this stay of execution like you said it's a piece of paper that they're receiving that is signed by the judge that says you know they are in their their appeals process and the the Warden is informing Tommy they do not have this piece of paperwork for him. And they, I mean, and they at the prison, they just, they do what they're told. They get paperwork, they follow the paperwork. They have an execution date, they follow the execution date. Right, and that's what he goes on to explain to Tommy. He tells him that 30 days before the execution, which is really, you know, now, is that um, the prisoners are going to be transferred to death, um, from death row to a 30-day holding area, which is closer to the execution chamber. When you say the prisoners we're talking just specifically about Tommy. Yeah, so Tommy will be he's he is saying, you know, at, at 30 days we're going to move you to another holding cell which is closer to the execution chamber that the last 5 days prior to execution the prisoner can only be visited in this case Tommy will only be able to be visited visited by immediate family and that there's a 5 person limit to this. And he's then informed that he needs to provide those 5 names the following day. The warden goes on to say that there should have been a stay of execution, but that since the prison never received any such paperwork, that they have to carry this out. And that's basically what we were just talking about. Exactly. And, and of course, uh, you know, Tommy asks about Carl and is like, well, what about Carl? Is is this happening for him, too? Because they're set to be executed on the exact same day. Right. And he is told that they did receive a stay of execution for Carl. And he says, quote, because he has a lawyer. And so... 
at this point, I think we should just try to imagine what this would feel like for this individual. Because it's like you go in and you're told by the warden, this is what's happening. You're set to die in a month. Your co-defendant isn't going to have that fate. He's in the appeal process. You believe at the sentencing that you have been given an attorney, that you have started your appeals process, and that this is all underway because that's what they told you was happening. They said, you know, the way he was told in the courts was that this is an automatic process. Everything will move forward. Don't worry about it. And he is in an, an maximum security prison where he cannot receive phone calls. He cannot um, send letters unless he has a stamp. Cannot, you know, he can only make collect calls. He's kind of in this position where it's crunch. It, it, he's down to the wire here, and he's talking to a warden who really doesn't have much information for him other than this is what we're set to do. We're going to execute you in a month. So, of course, the hysteria sets in, and Tommy does start to make some phone calls, and he calls um, this person who kind of he had made built a friendship with that was in Ada, um, who had some sympathy towards this case and took his calls, and asked that this person call Don Wyatt's office on his behalf. And and so they do they do contact Don Wyatt's office and he's not there. Don Wyatt has been having a lot of things going on with his family at the time of this case. We talked about that a little bit. But um but he does he does talk to somebody in the office who, you know, says that they're now they're gonna help kind of find out what's going on. Without getting into too much of the detail because it kind of goes back and forth. The you know it is it is uh, at the law office. This this situation is explained later to Don Wyatt. And the lawyer says, you know, Don Wyatt says that he, it had been his impression that the judge had instructed the DA to file the papers. Um, and they kind of have to go down this rabbit hole. They finally get in touch with the judge themselves. So hold on, so hold on. This phone call, though, happens at the end of December. Yes. So all of this is happening, I assume not immediately, I assume over the course of probably many days. Yeah. And meanwhile, the clock is literally counting down to the day that Tommy expects that he's going to die if if nothing gets worked out. Right. Exactly. And this person, you know, is trying to move as fast as they can and they're 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 finding some roadblocks because you know, Don Wyatt says, okay, it didn't get... Uh, Don Wyatt thought somebody else was doing it. Um, Bill Peterson isn't available to, to talk to about this. Um, this person then goes on to call the actual appellate public defender's office saying, you know, trying to get an attorney, and they say that they can't actually... That they received no information that Tommy Ward was in the appeals process, and now that they're representing Carl Fontenot, they can't actually even represent Tommy Ward. And that's because there would be a conflict of interest, because their cases are intertwined, um, but now they're separate defendants. For for their office to represent both of them would be a, a huge... Uh, a huge issue as far as the professional rules of responsibility that attorneys have to go by. And so that's just kind of like leaving Tommy in the dark again because they, I mean, they literally can't do anything yeah. for him. Because, I mean, he has no money for an attorney. He now is being told, he, you know, they're finding out he can't get a public defender. So this individual who works in, the, in Don Wyatt's office goes on now to actually call the judge that presided over the case. And 
call him at his home and explains the situation to him. And the judge handles it very well. You know, he takes the blame on himself. He says that he should have noticed that the paperwork was missing. He should have gone, you know, and followed up on what was happening. Um, The judge said that he would basically... He would have to formally assign the case to to um, the the public defender's office. They would have to formally deny it, right, or decline taking it, and then he would have to appoint a private attorney to handle Ward's appeals. So it's this shuffling of paperwork, right? It's this constant sort of. This is what all the steps that have to have to be followed, and all of these steps are going to take a while, right? Because now we get to New Year's Eve. That day passes. It's now 1986. So now he's scheduled to die. We're three weeks away. Right. And he still has heard nothing. Um, The judge and the lawyers thought that the problem was corrected. But, you know, due to the sort of pace of which a criminal justice system works and this, like, having to formally file pieces of paper all over the place, you know, we are now less than three weeks out, and he, from from what he knows, he is still scheduled to be executed. Because on January 6th, the warden actually goes on to call Tommy's mother and says at this point that we still have not received a stay of execution on your son's behalf. So... And this is just... 15 days until he's set to be executed. Exactly, exactly. And so Judge Powers uh, knows that he needs to appoint a private attorney to represent Tommy Ward. And no, we have to remember, no lawyers and Ada still want to take this case. He's, they, nobody still wants to take it. And so in a strange turn of events, which I found to be kind of comical, the judge, uh, the judge sets... Don Wyatt to defend Tommy Ward again. and So he appoints him to the case. He does. He appoints Don Wyatt to the case again. Don Wyatt is not happy about this. The office is not happy about it. Nobody's happy about it. But that's who is going to be is who's representing Tommy Ward in the appeals, in the appeal case. And this is, we're about two weeks until execution when this happens. Yeah, yeah. And so at this point, you know, Things are not looking good for Tommy. He is in isolation. He's in an isolation cell at this point because he was receiving some death threats in the in the penitentiary. Um, and he basically he gets word just over two weeks that the paperwork has been has been received and that he is not going to be executed. And so it's it's you know in the grand scheme of the case, sure it didn't do much. It, it was just a sort of uh, a misstep and a a very close, you know, close to the line mistake. But when I think about the impact that it has had on Tommy, um, that's the part of where I really start to think of the way that these systems not only, you know, impact people by incarcerating them, but the, also the things that happen while people are in custody and the things that you know, how complicated the systems are and how difficult they are to navigate and definitely how difficult they're navi- how they are to navigate from a cell, right? So, yeah, so that's why that story um, just really kind of, kind of uh, is more of the same in this case. It's more of the same, really. Well, and just the, the sort of 
I guess, mental torture, really, that Tommy must have been going through being on, you know, being on death row, but then all of a sudden, like, realizing that he's, you know, about, potentially about to die, that, you know, if this doesn't get cleared up, which it's, you know, now been two and a half months and it hasn't gotten cleared up, if this doesn't get cleared up, like, literally, he's going to die. I think of it as, like, dangling a person over a bridge, you know, by their ankles, and then at the very last minute bringing them in the, backing onto the, in through the window. You know, it's that, like... Except he's going through that terror for, for weeks instead yeah. of, like, seconds, seconds or minutes. Right. And he's in isolation, right? Because he is, at this point, been moved into an isolation cell. He's by himself in a cell due to some... You know, him and, which we don't need to go into too much, but him and Carl had gotten into some sort of difficulty while they were both on death row and they were in different in different cells for a while. But as could be expected, you know, people's sort of mental health starts to deteriorate a bit and some things were thrown around. And, and um, you know, Tommy did at one point really fear that he was going to be killed. And, and to think folks are not being murdered in prison would be naive. And, and they there were people murdered in prison in the very short time that they had already been there um and so you know things are just not you know and these are young men and they are yeah they're being just psychologically um scarred in this way that is uh, just kind of adds insult to injury but so now it's it's been cleared up he's he's not set to be executed on january 21st so where that leaves us right now is it's early January, first, second week of January, and both Tommy and Carl don't no longer have an execution date on the books, and they have time to get their appeals in order, find out if they, you know, if there are any options for them to, you know, get another trial or get some way off of death row. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. Once this gets cleared up, like we said, Tommy and Carl are still in jail. Now they are working on their appeals. Uh, Meanwhile, later in January, on January 20th, um, about 30 to 50 miles to the east of Ada County, um, depending on which road you take to get there, there are two highways, one... um, is about a 30-mile drive and one's about a 50-mile drive. Anyway, east of Ada, in a town called Gertie, Oklahoma, uh, there's a gentleman who wakes up January 20th and he decides he wants to go out and set some traps and try to catch some bobcats, uh, which I guess is maybe a normal thing to do in Oklahoma. But he goes out and he starts setting his bobcat traps. Um, He, like, drives somewhere uh, and sets these traps. And he's walking back to his truck when he notices something under a bush. And so he goes a little bit closer and, like, puts his hand on it to try and figure out what it is. And it turns out that what it is is a skull. And... I've never found a skull or a body or anything. I have no idea what my reaction would be. Um, But what he does is he takes note of the location where he found it and keeps walking to his truck and he leaves. And he gets home 
and he doesn't call the police. Um, and it's not clear whether he had intentions to call the police at some point and tell them, but that's not what he does. Um, sometime much, much later that day, his, uh, his brother-in-law comes over, and so he tells his brother-in-law about what happened and then decides to ask his brother-in-law if he'll call their friend. Their friend is Orville Rose, who happens to be the local sheriff. Um, and so, there, so the, the brother-in-law calls Orville Rose and tells him, you know, my brother-in-law was out setting traps for bobcats and found a skull. So at this point, it's already dark outside because he waited so long to tell anyone. And the sheriff says, well, we'll go out and check it out tomorrow when it's light out. I don't know if this is normal procedure when somebody finds what they believe are human remains to wait overnight to go out there and to look at them and to see them. I don't think it is. I don't think it's appropriate. And I doubt that that is the proper procedure but that's what happens they wait overnight the next morning the sheriff comes out uh to meet this gentleman and this gentleman uh drives him to where he found this skull and uh what they find there are bones um some remnants of clothes uh some soles of shoes the like cloth part on top of it had pretty much worn away and so at this point, they contact the Oklahoma City Crime Lab, and the Oklahoma City Crime Lab sent out two techs to collect everything. And so at this point, when the police are actually going out and collecting this, it is January 21st of 1986, and I'm just going to point out that it seems like a very eerie coincidence that this is the exact same day that Tommy and Carl were set to be executed. So they send these lab techs out um, to collect things. Uh, Part of what they have in the first set of their search is that they find the upper part of a jaw. The lower part is missing. They have the upper part. um, And they contact Ada and let them know that they have this body. Um, The clothes show that there's like a size nine waist, um, and there are some other indicators that this uh, body most likely belongs to a female, and so they believe that this may be the remains of Denise Haraway. Um, So meanwhile, in Ada County, once they are contacted, they go about the task of getting her dental records so that they can try to make a positive identification. Now, one interesting thing to note about this is, you know, they found they found a lot of bones. They didn't find all the bones. And like we mentioned, one of the things that they found was a skull. And the skull had two holes in it that appeared to be bullet wounds. And this is interesting because the confessions that were given by Tommy and Carl included um, that she had been stabbed either to death or until she was unconscious and then burned. Um, And their accounts were both different, uh, but neither of them included anyone even 
having a gun, let alone a gun being used to to end her life. Um, so this was an interesting turn of events. Um, anyhow, they send the bones to to Ada to be identified, and once they get those dental records, they try to match them um, with the part of the skull that they found, the part of the jaw that they found, and it turns out that it is a perfect match. And this body that they have just found is, in fact, Denise Haraway's body. So they find. So this is this is that moment then where we finally have a body. They have found what sounds like to be quite a few bits of uh, of her body. They find you know a pelvis and ribs and a jaw, part of her jaw. But the biggest piece is that this this skull that we now will know belongs to Denise. Haraway is showing signs of a of where a bullet entered and exited, right? So we now know that she had a gunshot wound to the head, and yet nowhere during this entire trial or during any of this was a gunshot ever mentioned. Well, and you know, I guess we don't really know this, but we don't know whether either of them even have a gun, but nowhere was a not even a gunshot, nowhere was even a gun mentioned like oh we had a gun that didn't have bullets in it that we used to get her in the car or what i mean there's no gun mentioned at all in any of the scenarios and to touch on you know what you were saying earlier about the isolation in prison and you know they can't get incoming calls and on and on so this information they match these dental records up it goes out to the media that they found the body of Denise Haraway and Tommy is watching TV in his cell and sees on the news that they've found Denise Haraway's body. And that is how he finds out. Um, and that's how Carl also finds out. And and Tommy is is pretty shaken about it. He ends up actually calling his home and his brother answers. And the one thing that he has to say about it is that he has never even heard of this city called Gertie, um, where her remains were apparently found. Um, it's also worth noting that Gertie, like I said, is east, about 30 to 50 miles east of Ada, Oklahoma. And both confession tapes noted that when they abducted Denise, they took the body west. Um, and so it's just another one of those discrepancies. Um, they do find some scraps that are part of a blouse, and that blouse does not match the description that Tommy gave, the description that her sister claims is the only blouse that's missing from her wardrobe. Um, it doesn't match. And so it's just more and more things. And in fact, when Carl hears that they found the body, he starts to have some hope about his situation because he hears that that um, she was shot and that's not what they said happened and he hears that she was found east of Ada and he knows that they their confession tapes said they'd gone west so he really starts to get hope that these discrepancies are now going to mean something that these discrepancies are are finally going to find the people who did it, that they'll be able to look at this and find out who did it. And so the other thing that happens is that in true form of this case, it's not handled well. 
you know, from the very start, like we said, of them waiting overnight to go and look at this body. The next thing that kind of goes wrong is they do call lab techs to come in, but they don't call the medical examiner. And they don't take pictures of the scene either. And the way that the scene looks can be very important for a medical examiner. And I don't I don't know all the reasons why, because I'm not a medical examiner. Uh, but I know that the way that a body is placed or where it's placed, um, certain you know markings that they might find on the bones, or you know, in her case, there are only bones remaining. Um, but a lot of these things are going to influence or help a medical examiner to be able to write their report and to to create as much information and to recreate the crime as much as possible, even down to determining, you know, was she murdered at this place where they found her? Well, that's what I think of. I think of as it are, they weren't even treating it to, to think of it as if it had been a crime scene or not, right? Yeah. The assumption is that she was brought out there and dumped out there. But, but we don't know. But Nobody don't knows. Know that because it wasn't treated as a crime scene. It wasn't treated as get this area completely closed off, take pictures of everything everything, you know, really calm the area and it shouldn't be an area that is just open where people can show up. But I think we see as we move forward, correct me if I'm wrong, that people are able to just continuously go to that scene. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not, it's, it's just like McAnally's. It's not treated as a crime scene. And this time they have a, a body, right? Like I, it was, This is the evidence. It was egregious <laughs> enough that McAnally's wasn't treated as a crime scene, but now you've got a bo- like the actual bones of a human being, and you're still not treating it like a crime scene. And so they don't contact the medical examiner, so the medical examiner can't go out there and examine the scene for themselves, and they don't take pictures. They don't take pictures of where the bones are found, what the scene is like. They take nothing and so the medical examiner or anybody else who could use those pictures as a as a crime scene which is what it is even if she wasn't murdered there it's a scene where somebody dumped a body it's a crime scene like none of this is done none of these pictures are taken nothing nothing like this is done um and yeah like you said they don't they don't um you know they don't tape it off they don't close it off they don't do anything like that Um, You know, our usual suspects uh, are super interested in this body. Dennis Smith, Mike Baskin, Gary Rogers, they all really want to go out. And those were, you know, the detectives and police from Ada County who were on this case from the start. They all want to go out and see the crime scene. And so they do. They go to where Denise's body had been found, and they go and they look around for more evidence, see if maybe they can find a weapon or a bones or some some more clothes or anything like that. They don't take pictures while they're out there. Um, They don't create any sort of written record to document the fact that they are going out there looking for these things. I mean, they do absolutely nothing by the book when they go out there. So now they've done this search. They've, you know, they've picked up some bones. They've picked up some pieces of fabric. And 
it's sent to the medical examiner for an examination. And, you know, Nicole, we said one of the big discrepancies here is that there was a bullet. Um, and all of the, the confessions, the two confessions said that they had basically stabbed Denise in, like, the chest and rib area. Yeah, and so when these ribs were found, um, you know, the detectives who found them, because we have to remember that Dennis Smith is there, Mike Baskin, they um, are given information initially that there are marks on the ribs that could indicate that she was stabbed as well as shot. Of course, uh, Dennis Smith went to the press with this immediately, as he often does when he gets a piece of information. He goes to the press, and he says, yes, this body... Because the news of the gunshot wound had spread, and so this starts to put the idea out there that maybe these two are now innocent, right? Because it's this is a huge discrepancy. So when he gets word that the ribs are showing these scratches, he then goes to the press and says, you know, she was stabbed initially and was later shot and so that kind of to him feels kind of sticks with the story but were these scratches actually knife wounds no so but he's gone out to the but he's already gone to the press and given this information and we now have the two main uh, medical examiner individuals come to this new conclusion that the marks on denise haraway's rib cage had not been made by a knife but had been made by animal teeth and they give a 98% degree of certainty on this. So this is, the medical examiner goes on to telephone uh, Bill, P- Bill Peterson and tells him about this finding. He makes a note of the phone conversation, but Bill Peterson does not notify the defense attorneys of this new finding, nor does he tell the press or the public, who now still believe that Denise Haraway has been stabbed as well as shot. So this is a huge moment where we have, and of course it gets to the point, we've done this podcast long enough now, it almost feels like, of course we get to, we keep kind of making these same points that this is, this case is handled in such a way that is infuriating, but it is another example of where this major piece of information that both of them gave was that she had been stabbed. That yes, the initial finding said maybe she had been stabbed, but now the these doctors whose job it is to look at the remains come out and say with 98% certainty, these are from animals. They are some kind of animal got at her remains while she was in the woods. It had been months, years that she had been out there maybe. We don't know. And so, you know, that now it totally discredits it and is now, it is just a gunshot wound to the head that has killed her. And that's... It's just another one of these things in the case that is being, number one, mishandled, and number two, put out to the public to, like, put a nail in Tommy and Carl's coffin and say, they did this, hands down, no matter what, and this is the information the public's getting, even though it's not... It's not real. No. And I think that this case, for me, really brings to light that kind of um, when we are given information by the press, even reputable press, when we are given information by the press uh, regarding crimes or regarding big, you know, we all can remember huge national cases that have kind of taken over the news sources. And, you know, we read this information that comes out and we think to ourselves, yes, okay, that's it. And we make a decision. And... I think in this case, it really kind of highlights time and time and time again how the press was given information that later on was found to not be true 
but yet they were not given the updated information that, you know, you have individuals that get excited because they have some information that backs up their theory. They bring that out into the, into the world. It spreads like wildfire. And then when it's found to not be true, that information never sees the light of day. Well, and the press was being irresponsible, too. I mean, even down to um, when it was finally mentioned that these confessions were a dream. That didn't even show up in the press. Right. I I think it's just a a gentle reminder to just really kind of take this stuff when you read it, when we hear about it, when the hysteria moves through a community, that we're not getting all the information. Absolutely. And so another thing that happens here is that on February 22nd, so a little over a month after the body is originally found, the police decide that they want to take a search party out there and see what else they can find. And of course, this scene has not been secured this entire time. Anyone can come and go as they please. In fact, at one point, uh, because it was advertised, where where her body was found was advertised in the media. So at one point, you know, someone who had been following the case and who had been really interested in the case ended up going out there because they wanted to see the crime scene because well at least somebody felt like it was a crime scene and so this person who's not a police officer it's nothing to do with the case who's just followed in and in the media and been really intrigued by it goes out to the scene and finds uh underneath a rock like this this piece of fabric that that it's like Presumably, some part of some article of clothing that belongs to Denise. And, you know, they had really just gone out there to look at the scene and to just see, just to see it, uh, but ended up finding something there. And so they put it in a paper bag and end up taking it to the police. Uh, but it's just this another example of just how poorly this is handled, how poorly it was searched in the first place and how it wasn't roped off as a crime scene. So then, you know, like I said, about a month later, they go out there with a search party. And part of this search party, they bring members of Denise's family. They bring Denise's husband. They bring Denise's uh, father-in-law, her father, her brother, and other relatives of her. Which is just so inappropriate on so many levels. I mean, just on the most basic human level, they are recruiting her family members to come out and find her her bones and her body parts and her her clothes. And that is just, it's just not appropriate on a human level. And then on on a legal level, to have people who are part of her family go out there is is not something that's going to hold up in court. I mean, you know, of, it's of, of all people who would have a motive to um, maybe put something out there to, to frame Tommy and Carl and keep them in jail, because I would imagine that they believe that Tommy and Carl did it. After seeing these heinous confessions, after everything the police have been telling them, like, these are the people who have a real motive to keep these two in jail. And so if they did have anything to try and and make sure that they stay in jail, and I'm not saying that any of these people would do this, but they could. And that's the problem, that they're being given the opportunity to plant evidence right. if any of them had that 
motivation or inclination. Um, yeah, and they're just they're out there looking for this stuff, and it's just so inappropriate. Um, and it's just another one of these things in this case that has gone terribly, terribly wrong. But the search doesn't end up turning up anything other than, you know, like a few scraps of blue jeans, really nothing that is of any use. And so meanwhile, Nicole, what's happening with the the bones and the evidence that has been found? So once everything is kind of, you know, that's a, that last search was a month out. Um, again, we won't talk anymore about how that, that scene wasn't handled very well. But after, the, after that last search, um, you know, the lab basically they photograph, they catalog the bones, they X-ray the skull, they test the remnants for, with chemicals, they um, they record the evidence of the homicide in case a new trial is ever ordered. You know, they basically like write down all the information that they need to uh, what they have learned about this case from from her remains, and then. And then her remains are returned to her family. And at this point, her family is given an opportunity to hold her a service. Um, They do. The service was private. It was just for family. There wasn't even a public announcement uh, made about the service or that they were able to finally, I think, uh, have some closure on this. We will be back here next week with another episode of Unraveled, and we are going to talk about what this new discovery, the discovery of Denise's body, what does that mean to Tommy and Carl, to their case, to their appeals, and what's going to happen next. We are also going to talk more about what was found in the medical examiner's report that is probably one of the most incredible things in this case and something that uh, personally I think is the biggest bombshell that I've really been waiting to talk about all season. Yeah, this is the piece of information that for me is what hooked me onto this case. Um, How this medical examiner's report holds this information, what is done with this information, and what isn't done with this information. It's huge. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.